This is the Spring Research Project podcast where we talk about community sponsorship of refugees. My name is Eliza Bateman and I am Head of Research at the University of Ottawa Refugee Hub. And I'm Tiomir Sabchev, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Refugee Hub. Welcome everyone to the Spring Podcast. I'm Eliza Bateman. I'm the Head of Research at the University of Ottawa Refugee Hub, and I'm pleased to be here today with my colleague, Tio Sabchev. We are into episode three of our podcast. If you would like to go back and listen to episodes one and two, you can find them in exactly the same place you found this one. In our previous two episodes, we focused on different actors within the private sponsorship of refugees program in Canada. And we looked at their role in supporting newcomer arrival and settlement. But today we've gone to the heart of the matter. We want to focus on refugee newcomers and how they experience settlement in Canada. So in the spring project, we highlight and investigate the importance of newcomer settlement, the successful newcomer settlement, for the overall success of the PSR program, the sponsorship programs in general, and most importantly, for refugee newcomers themselves. Syrians are by far the largest ethnic group of resettled refugees to Canada, or have been the largest ethnic group of resettled refugees to Canada over the past few years. Since 2015, according to government records, more than 80,000 Syrian people have arrived in Canada. About half of these folks were sponsored to Canada under the PSR program, which makes them also the largest group of privately sponsored refugees to Canada in this period. Today, we want to talk about the settlement of people who are Syrian who are privately sponsored to Canada. How do their settlement trajectories look a few years down the road? What are some of the challenges they've faced and experienced and overcome? And what are some key lessons that policymakers can take away from this whole of society resettlement effort that is continuing? We're very happy to welcome two expert guests to discuss this topic with us today, and I'll pass over to Tiho to introduce them to you. Thank you, Eliza, and welcome everyone to our third episode. Today, just as in our previous episode, we are trying to combine the academic and the practitioner perspective, and for this reason, we have invited two fantastic guest speakers to help us. First, we have with us Michaela Hinia who is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Interim Director of the Center for Refugee Studies at York University. Dr. Hinia conducts community-based research on integration and social determinants of health with communities experiencing social conflict, social exclusion, or forced displacement and migration. Her research projects include research on maternal mental health in Rwanda, access to healthcare for refugees in Canada and in South Africa, and the relationship between state refugee policies and health and well-being in Canada, Germany and South Africa. Dr. Hinia is the past president of the Canadian Association for Refugee and Forced Migration Studies. Professor Hinia, Michaela, if I may, it's a pleasure to welcome you on our podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We also have with us Maysun Darwesh, who is a former refugee from Syria. Maysun is the co-founder and the executive director of Kurdish Initiative for Refugees. She is also the program coordinator for migration and resettlement at the Mennonite Central Committee of Manitoba, 
where she is responsible for the private sponsorship of refugees program and the blended visa office referred program. Maysun is an advisor at the Refugee Advisory Network of Canada. She was the refugee delegate for the Executive Committee of the High Commissioner in October 2021 and the refugee advisor expert with the Government of Canada's delegation for the annual tripartite consultations on resettlement in June 2022. Last but not least, Maysun is also a board member at the Ethnocultural Council of Manitoba and a board member at the Asian Heritage Society of Manitoba. Maysun, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Today, I would like to start the discussion with the broader picture, and for this reason, I would like to turn first to Michaela, who has been involved in several projects directly related to the settlement of refugees sponsored by the Government of Canada, as well as privately sponsored. So, Michaela, may I invite you, please, to share some information about your research projects and also to highlight some of your main findings in relation to the integration of sponsored newcomers in Canada. Thank you so much, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about some of our work. I think I want to speak primarily about a study that we conducted with Syrian refugees who had arrived between 2015 and 2017 in Canada. This is a study that we did in collaboration with about 22 partners across Canada, looking at the experiences of people who were settled either as GARs or PSRs, or in some case as BVORs, Blended Visa Office Referred Refugees, in uh, three provinces, in British Columbia, in Ontario, and in Quebec. And when we started this project, we started with over 1,930 individuals, that's more than 800 and how many families was that? More than 860 families, I believe. That's important because I'm going to return to this issue of family uh, in a second. And about half of them were government assisted and half of them were privately sponsored refugees. Again, about 80 individuals came as beavors. So we were interested in following them over four years to try to understand a little bit more about the impact of private sponsorship on people's integration outcomes. So specifically, we were looking at four questions. One was whether government-assisted refugees and privately sponsored refugees access services differently in their first year. We wanted to know if their pattern of service use predicted different integration outcomes. We wanted to know if some of the initial differences between government-assisted and privately-sponsored refugees actually had an impact on the pathways that uh, their integration followed or on how they used services. And then we wanted to see if those integration pathways predicted their physical or mental health four years later. I think for this conversation, what I would like to focus on is some of the differences between our privately sponsored and government assisted refugees and why that has complicated the question of what are the differences for people who are privately sponsored or government assisted. And to start with, one of the things that is often not discussed when we talk about private sponsorship is how many of the people who arrive privately sponsored are actually coming to join family members. And 
that both means that they have access to perhaps some additional social support and social resources. But sometimes we've heard that family members feel that once they've brought somebody to Canada, the bulk of their work is done. We were unclear whether joining family would have different implications for one's uh, pathway, integration pathway, relative to joining a group of strangers who were doing a community sponsorship. So one of the ways that we try to look at the differences between our privately sponsored and government-assisted refugees was dividing them not by whether they were GAR, PSR, and BVOR, but rather if they were coming as government-assisted refugees, so their sponsorship is coming from the government, whether they were coming as privately sponsored refugees who were sponsored by family members, or whether they were coming as privately sponsored refugees sponsored by strangers or as BVORs. Because while the source of financial support is different between those two groups, where they're getting their settlement support is the same. It's coming from a group of stranger or community sponsors. And one of the things that was surprising to us about this was how different the profile of those people who came as government-assisted refugees was relative to those who came as privately sponsored or as our community-sponsored group. So we're going to call the BVOR and stranger-sponsored group the community-sponsored group. So we'll have government-assisted, family-sponsored, uh, community-sponsored. For example, among the people who came in our GAR group, about 30% had four or more children. The proportion with a family that size or larger among the family-sponsored was only 2.7%, and among the community-sponsored was only 12%. So big difference in terms of family size. Another striking difference was around education. So while our government-assisted refugees, 41% of them had less than six years of education, that was the case for only 11% of our privately sponsored and about 24% of our community sponsored. At the other end of the distribution, those coming in with a university education represented only 6.5% of our government-assisted refugees. 29, 30, almost 30% of the family-sponsored, and 22% of the community-sponsored. And two other important differences, well, three actually, one is around language, that a third of our government-assisted refugees always needed to have an interpreter with them at official meetings. This is in year two, so they've been here now for two to three years. That was only 20% for our family-sponsored and for our community-sponsored. The length of time they spent in displacement was twice as long for those who were government-assisted refugees than those who were family-sponsored, so 38 months versus 18 months. For the community-sponsored, it was about 30 months. And then finally, religion. So 96% of those who came as government-assisted refugees were Muslim. That was only 18% among the family-sponsored and 50% among the community-sponsored. Why do these things matter? We know that the path of integration is going to be easier if you have a smaller family, if you have a higher level of education, if you can speak English. And because of our concerns around Islamophobia, we were also concerned that individuals who came in as Muslim newcomers may have experienced different challenges than those who came in as Christian or other groups. 
We also know that the majority of the Syrians who were living in Canada prior to that Syrian conflict were in fact Christian. So if they were sponsoring family members, they would have shared a religious background. So we weren't surprised at the difference, but we were surprised that it was so stark. So just from the very get-go, it's very difficult to compare outcomes for groups coming in through different migration pathways because we're really talking about very different groups. Thank you, Michaela. In fact, this is something that we've observed also in our spring project. And we have seen that the profiles of the Syrian newcomers who come through the government assistance refugee program and the private sponsorship of refugees program is very different. And this obviously has an enormous impact on the integration outcomes. And perhaps this is one of the main reasons for which we decided not to focus on the integration outcomes in our research project. But may I ask you from your research, what kind of impact did you see from these uh, differences in demographics of the two groups? Did you see, for example, different um, trajectories when it comes to labor market integration or other aspects of the integration of the newcomers? Thank you. Yes, we actually did see some not unsurprising relationships between personal background and outcome. So not surprisingly, uh, looking at the second year of our data, which would have been uh, year two to three for people who had come to Canada, we saw that those who had a higher level of education were more likely to have employment. We, we weren't surprised to discover that. What we did find that was surprising was that the proportion of people who had er, were earning more than minimum wage was the same regardless of their education level. So while you may be more likely to get a job if you had a university education, your likelihood of, of earning more than minimum wage in year two or three after arriving Canada was no greater than that of somebody with less than nine years of education. Not surprisingly then, we found that people who had a higher level of education reported that their job was less likely to be in their area of expertise, that it was less appropriate to their training. They also reported more stress and a lower sense of control in their lives. And what we have seen in our research, not only in this study, but in many studies, is that the longer people are in Canada, the poorer they report their mental health to be. And when we looked at it by education, we saw that that decrease was steeper for people who had a higher level of education. And that was seemed to have been explained by the fact that their employment outcome was further away from what their expectations and qualifications were. So we have this interesting contradiction here, which is that it might be easier to find employment if you have a higher level of education. You can speak the language, you are um, perhaps more able to find a job, but that job is not likely to be in your area of expertise. The people who reported finding a job in their area of expertise were people who were working in trades or had some training for trades-based employment. Thanks so much, Michaela. That's um, a fantastic start to the conversation. I. May soon. I'd love to, to go to you now. 
And may I say, um, it's lovely to sort of see you slash meet you. I know we've had a couple of opportunities to connect and we haven't actually seen each other almost in person. So um, thank you for being with us today. I know that you have a lot of on the ground experience with settlement. I know both personally and professionally, you are a settlement worker, you've been a resettlement program coordinator, you've worked with one of the biggest SARS. So with all this background, I, I'd love your reflections on some of the broad findings that Michaela just outlined, I think particularly in relation to the challenges that, that Syrian newcomers face uh, when they arrive in Canada. Thank you, Michaela. It's so good to be here and uh, also to hear about this amazing research. In fact, I was nodding my head, you know. <laughs> the issues actually uh, related to um, sponsorship, let's say, or adjustment or a daily uh, life for uh, Syrian refugees, Syrian resettled refugees here are massive. We are dealing with it in a daily basis. And of course, uh, noticing the importance of family reunification in their uh, mental health, actually affecting their mental health. They are living out of guilt, uh, many times uh, using different uh, sponsorship programs who were, was designed actually to help all refugees. Now, uh, I have to say, I see it every day has been used specifically for family reunification because of the pressure they feel towards their loved ones who were left behind in host countries, refugee camps. So it's it's really concerning. Plus the language issues, trauma they they have to deal with. Like after six years, we still see this happening even the way how they react to the society, people around them. Uh, many of them had has established a very good life, the way that we consider it a good life, purchased their own properties, let's say, uh, paying their taxes, working. On the other hand, lots of them, they, let's say, stuck. So it's, it's concerning, but yet uh, we are working on it. Uh, within the community, trying to find uh, different solutions to solve these issues. And uh, we always try to see the light here in the new generations. Uh, I can say uh, through the programs that we are implementing within uh, the community, vast majority of the youth, at least here, let's say in Manitoba, uh, they are pursuing high level of education, uh, they have lots of uh, goals to uh, get their degrees, undergraduate uh, degrees, or uh, just to change the, the, the norm that they used to deal with. Uh, but of course, they inherited the trauma that their parents are living. Uh, I don't have a study on this, uh, no research. It's based on my own experience and my daily uh, interacting with them. Uh, through the programs also um, that, as I mentioned, we are implementing. Uh, as you know, I'm running uh, my own community organization since 2016 to assist refugee families and youth in their uh, daily adjustment. I'm not saying it has been an easy path, no, but it was also, um, it was joyful to see the changes, but yet 
the expectations probably that we set was very unrealistic. We were hoping things would really move forward quickly, but uh, it's moving, but in a, let's say, a a very slow pace. Uh, Work opportunities, not only among educated people, let's say um, I came here as a refugee. I was sponsored through my church, through MCC. I didn't work in my field, for example. I had to start uh, to start from scratch, develop new skills, gain uh, a, a new knowledge, uh, and nothing wrong with that. In fact, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm using my degree uh, and my pr- previous experience in my uh, daily career, uh, even in my volunteering work. So I always say it's a perspective. Uh, some educated uh, resettled refugees refuse to do something different from what they used to. Uh, Many times they say, um, we study this, we've been doing this for years, why on earth we'll start from scratch? Some of them will say, you know what, whatever, I will just hang my degree on the wall and I will learn something new and I will try my best to uh, move forward for uh, my family. Thank you so much for those reflections. It's incredibly valuable. Um, I do have a couple of follow-up questions for you. I'd love to learn a little bit more about this community organisation that you lead. You talked about some of the strategies that you employ to sort of help people overcome those obstacles after they arrive and they feel really lost and they may have to change their employment. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what you do um, to support people in that position. Sure. Uh, This community organization called Kurdish Initiative for Refugees, uh, we started it in 2016. And it was very small, actually. The idea was to create programs for newcomer, uh, for um, Syrian uh, resettled refugees, uh, for youth and children specifically. After that, we figured the needs for uh, daily support, especially for government-assisted refugees. Because after the settlement agency is closed at five, there is no way that they will, you know, get the support that they need. So uh, we formed this uh, group of uh, volunteers under the community organization umbrella. Uh, We were on call 24-7, whatever they need, especially a vast majority of them. They had no English uh, skills. Uh, whatever they need, let's say, at the hospital, they're searching for houses, etc. Again, it's a volunteer basis. So after that, uh, we said, you know what? The families are struggling as well to understand the local culture, uh, how people think here, uh, lots of misconception. Uh, so we start meeting with the families, uh, creating a men's group, women groups, plus the youth and children group just to explain life here, how healthy is going to be to adjust, even as a start to understand the culture around us, because we figured people were here physically, but mentally and emotionally, they still live back home. They still, um, you know, function in a way that they're still in Syria, as if they never left Syria. So, We started this uh, and we found it very helpful because we speak the language, we understand the culture. I personally grew up in Syria, so they they, they were listening. 
they 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 heard uh, uh, our experience for example uh, i came in 2012 december 13 2012 so um it, it didn't take me uh, that long with my family to understand and integrate because we came through private sponsored refugee program my church took care of us introducing us to the culture introducing us to everything that we need to know so we started this with our community here and uh, of course people start expressing their interest to uh, work they always say we are searching for a job nobody want to hire us because our english is very poor uh, we don't know how to communicate so our goal was how to help them to find a job that match their skills or teach them new skills that's when we also started to connect them with something they are familiar with and yet with people who can communicate with them speak the language uh, in fact i'm running my own business who hire refugees as well just to 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 ease the 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 process for them gain uh, skills gain experience uh, many times when they want to apply to um, uh, uh, let's say um, construction companies for example they will say oh you don't know the workplace safety because uh, you don't speak english so we started also implementing this course in arabic so they can have you know this proper knowledge about you know how to protect yourself how to understand the uh, workplace uh, how how to 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 maintain uh, uh, security in the in the you know workplace at the workplace so that's how we started and i have to say uh, lots of them now are working uh, many of them are not they still you know struggling we try to help them to find a way many times we say what do you want you want to pursue education you want to work you want to uh, establish your future based on financial uh, accomplishment it's important to have this connection and communication and create this trust foundation you know otherwise they won't open up trust was a big issue at the beginning so our target was how to build this trust and how to create this network how to make them feel comfortable that they can come and ask and and uh, you know uh, pursue what they want without feeling like oh we don't belong here we don't fit in that was the key for us uh, i don't want to say we accomplished this 100% but i do believe we are doing very well not alone i don't want to take the credit for our community organization it wasn't our work alone it was a hundred percent collaboration with stakeholders settlement agencies our partners with ethnocultural communities here in in manitoba plus we are trying to create uh, policies with the uh, collaboration with the government as well through, uh, uh, for example, Refugee Advisory Network. I'm an advisor there as well. So all this work, all this network is really the key to improve refugee, resettled refugee situation here. I don't know if I answer your question though. <laughs> you absolutely did. Thank you. Tio, I'll go to you now. Actually, I was wondering if I could follow up on a couple of the points that Nasun has made. I think that you've raised a couple of really important 
elements to supporting successful integration for all newcomers in Canada, not just for people who come through forced migration. Uh, in particular, that we need to be able to ask people what their goals are and let them define what they think successful integration looks like and to recognize that there will be different pathways for different people. We often emphasize uh, employment, for example, as the, as the first priority. But for some individuals, it might be education to be able to achieve a different kind of career. For others, it might be to stay home and raise their family. We saw that women, often if they had young children, were not looking for employment because their priority was to make sure they could raise their children. So it's not a one-size-fit-all pathway. The other thing that I thought was really important was also when you were talking about offering those information courses around safety in Arabic and how it makes such a difference when the institutions and organizations in society accommodate the needs of the individuals in that society, whether that means offering courses in other languages, whether it means recognizing um, documentation or accreditation from another country, or whether that means giving people more time to prepare for a position. So in many cases, there are lots of opportunities that would be possible if the organizations, whether they're the hiring organizations or the crediting organizations, actually changed some of their requirements to be more flexible so that more people could access them. It's not about lowering standards, it's about recognizing that the pathway to demonstrate that you can achieve what's required can be more complex when you're coming from a forced migration background. And one other thing I just wanted to touch on, and I'd love to hear, uh, Masun, what you've experienced with this. One of the things we began looking at is what was happening at the level of the family rather than looking at it just at the level of the individual. And we started thinking about this when we were interviewing people to evaluate um, resettlement programs. And we spoke to a young man whose mother had very serious health problems. And he, as an individual, spoke English fairly well, but not well enough yet to attend university. But he couldn't attend his language classes because he had to accompany his mother to her medical appointments. And he couldn't find a job because her medical appointments were at unpredictable times. And so there was no employment that would accommodate his need to support his mother. And we began thinking that we fail to capture the ways in which families support each other. One person stays at home with the children so the other one can work or go to school, or so that the other one can accompany somebody with uh, a health challenge during that difficult time. So when we talk about how children decide to go to university to get an education so that they can get a better job and their parents might give up their own career opportunities so that their children can pursue that. And we've done some of this work sort of at, at an academic level looking at how families cluster and looking at the impact of having anyone in the family who can speak English having anyone in the family with a higher level of education or having anyone in the family who is dealing with difficult physical or mental health challenges. And we see that those resources and those additional requirements affect the entire family because the family as a unit works together. So I, I just 
you know, I think you've raised this, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about this in your own work, but we are so focused on the individual, we forget that people come as families and they work together as families to go through the integration process. Uh, thank you for addressing that. It's connected to the culture itself. One of the very shocking things for, for res Syrian resettled refugees, the individualism here, you know, to them, when you talk about the family, it's a unit. You, you, you cannot say, oh, I love that. Uh, this is my uh, uh, boundaries. Don't cross the boundaries. To them, this does not exist. It, it's not my place to say it's right, it's wrong, whatever, you know. <laughs> But uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Like to them, it's all connected. They have to take care of each other. They have to look after each other. There is nothing to say, uh, oh, it's uh, it's my education or it's my career. Um, okay, take, you have to find a way to uh, get the proper support. For example, this individual with his mother, he could have asked for support from um, an institution like a house support worker or health support worker. But this is a big stigma to let your parents, for example, deal with uh, a health support worker while you can support your, your parents. It's, uh, again, cultural things. It's something uh, we notice a lot, and sometimes it creates obstacles within the family composition because you can see someone really uh, uh, have a promising future or promising skills or need to do something, uh, the parents will say, no, that's not what we see for you. Uh, that's not we, what we are hoping uh, for you. And of course, I will talk to the parents like, this is wrong. Let them uh, choose what, what he or she wants. That's not your, your dream. It's their dream. It's really different, different culture, different concept, but it's really affect the, 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 the nature of, of family and their uh, daily life here after they uh, come to Canada. So uh, sometimes it's really struggling, especially when uh, one member uh, of the family have different vision, wants to um, have their own view of, of future. They want to have their own uh, path that's really different from the family or what the family is hoping. In many cases, they can't. In many cases, when they decide to do it, it's just like, oh, this person broke our will, uh, left our circle. Again, we intervene. We speak to the family. We, 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 we try to find a way. But it is a huge struggle. And uh, in many times, actually, many institutions do not understand uh, why you have to listen to the family, for example, why you have to follow uh, parents' will, why you need to fulfill their needs. Again, our job here is to create this healthy connection between different uh, parties in order to form an understanding about what's going on. It's different culture, what should we do? Is it possible to create a, a, a middle space between everything to uh, just help those individuals to still connect to their families, but also accomplish what they want? Is our policies helping that? Is our society helping that? That's the question many times I have to ask. What really we, we, we are offering or doing for those people? And in many cases, they, they give up. 
they don't pursue what they want because I, as may soon fail to create a, a let's say, a, a medium space that can fulfill the expectations from the society and from the family. I'm not putting any pressure here. Again, it's just something to discuss because it's a, it's a struggle and I appreciate you address it. Thank you, Maison. I want to use this opportunity actually to use the transition that Michaela started from looking at integration through the lenses of the individual and moving to looking at integration through the lenses of the family unit. So I want here to, to focus a little bit on the societal context and the institutional context as an important aspect that enables or, or puts burdens for the integration of newcomers. And Michaela, you've been working on this and you have even um, developed a, the so-called holistic integration model that introduces exactly this importance of the societal and institutional context of arrival. I wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit on that and based on this to give us your impression from the Canadian settlement policy context over the last years for Syrians. What were the strengths that you saw there and what were the weaknesses of, of the Canadian settlement policies? Thank you for that question. Uh, there's a lot to it. I will, um, let me start a little bit by talking about integration. We were motivated to come up with a new integration model, which is not so new in terms of its elements, but rather new in terms of the emphasis that we tried to put on factors that people had identified as being important, but that often weren't measured when people tried to assess integration. So it's based on an earlier model that's quite widely used by Ager and Strang. And we've expanded that model to say, when you think about integration, you should be thinking about it at three different levels. The level that's in the middle is the one that we tend to focus on. It is the extent to which people's own skills, abilities, and knowledge fit with the environment they find themselves in. So it's language, it's culture, and then it's what we consider the markers of successful integration, access to housing, employment, education, and healthcare. That's often all we measure. And just uh, satisfying that level differs depending on your own personal history and background, your level of education, your language skills, um, whether you have a disability, which will require more complex housing, uh, for example or larger families. But we also need to think about what's happening internally at the level of the person's emotional feeling of belonging or attachment. How safe do they feel? Are they permanently res residing in this country or are they here on a temporary permit? Many asylum seekers and refugees only get temporary permission to stay and never achieve permanency or have conditional permanency. One of the strengths of Canada's forced migration policies is that you land as a resettled refugee as a permanent resident, or if your asylum claim is accepted, you become a permanent resident. So you have security of residency. I would add to that uh, feeling physically secure and safe, and also the security of uh, income. So financial insecurity is also a source of emotional disconnection. 
feelings of belonging and feeling at home would be the other part of that subjective experience of integration. And those subjective feelings also influence how easily you uh, are able to achieve those middle level variables or whether you withdraw and stop trying. At the third level, we're talking about social factors, the context, the nature of the relationships you have with people within your own co-ethnic community or groups, but also your relationships with people in other groups. The extent to which you experience a welcoming society, so your uh, inclusion in various kinds of social groups, the extent to which you experience discrimination, the extent to which you feel that you are respected and that your status is recognized by other people in your community and your society. And then the last is this institutional accommodation that we were just talking about, where healthcare institutions provide uh, language interpretation, for example, where uh, educational institutions acknowledge your previous credentials. So these are all things that institutions should be doing to accommodate everybody that they serve. And they are now serving people who happen to have a forced migration background. So they need to change themselves. And our concern about including that social level is recognizing that when we talk about integration, what we're talking about is a society changing itself so that all the members can be included and participate. And that means that it's not just the newcomers who are changing. It means that the society has to change at all of these different levels, at the level of relationships and social networks, at the level of community attitudes and inclusion, and at the level of institutions providing services. One of the things that motivated us to actually develop this model was also that Canada seems to be quite conscious of the need for this two-way integration process. So when the Canadian government wants to evaluate successful integration, it is looking at things like social networks and welcoming communities. So in some ways, we do quite well on that level. Our private sponsorship program is also another example of how we build at the social level because we are providing opportunities for people to expand their social networks by meeting people outside of their ethnic communities. We know that both our uh, government assisted refugee program and our private sponsorship program have included in them a goal of creating a more welcoming society with more positive attitudes. And the fact that Canadians feel like they are in control of resettlement also creates more welcoming attitudes. People feel like this is something Canada does. So it contributes to creating a more welcoming society. The other thing that we do really well in our settlement policies is we provide enough financial support for people to get some of the language skills that they need to establish themselves professionally. There is a fabulous book by Heba Gawayed, where she compared settlement policies for Syrian refugees in Canada, the United States, and Germany. The book is called Refuge. And she actually delivered a really interesting talk on this book just last week, the beginning of October, and that's on the Center for Refugee Studies events page. And she compares how the settlement policies that force people into employment before they've had a chance to access language services, particularly in the United States, forces them into precarious and low-paying employment and limits their opportunities. It also limits their ability to achieve citizenship because language is one of the things that are required in order to achieve citizenship and navigate the various settlement challenges people have. 
So creating settlement policies that actually acknowledge that people need some time to establish themselves before they are expected to find employment in order to be able to fulfill their potential and their goals is one of the things that we do better than some of the other countries that we can compare ourselves to. The Germany provides language training for an extended period of time and in fact requires that people take language training, but that doesn't translate then into permanent residency unless you pass your uh, language exams. And that could be very difficult for people who are older, who have lower levels of education, and who are now trying to learn a new language without literacy in their first language, for example. So uh, people critique the system in Canada. Uh, it could certainly improve in some areas, but compared to what's available in some other countries, we're doing, we're doing well. Thanks, Michaela. Um, firstly, I want to say I wish that we had hours for this podcast because I'm learning so much from both of you, and um, I, unfortunately we don't. So I'm going to move us on to our last question, but just to say um, this has been such a wonderful conversation and I, I hope that we can keep having it in different forms. Maysoon, I would love to go to you now and ask you, based on your research and experience and the conversation we've had today about the significance of the family unit and about cultural considerations and about all the different challenges in terms of settlement but also some of the advantages potentially that Syrian families might have in terms of how they support each other, but also you know, the obstacles they face in Canadian society. Bearing all that in mind as a starting point, if you were designing a sponsorship program for another country and they asked you to come in as an expert and talk about settlement services, what would your recommendations be? Very important question, <laughs> because we're truly trying to promote for private sponsorship program. Everywhere we go, even uh, when I uh, was at the ATCR conference last June, always talking about private sponsorship program. How great is this program, you know? It's important to acknowledge the power of general public. If you want to help refugees, you need to get the support from general public. In order to do that, you need to educate the general public, not only about the successful stories, but also about the actual struggle. Many times I, I figured, uh, well, not here in Canada, let's say, uh, from also my experience dealing with different you know, systems, they alienate refugees, like in, in many cases. They, they don't want to even know about what's really happening. They mix between refugees and immigrants. That's where we step in. We try to explain. So the private sponsor refugee program itself, the way it is now, it's really great. Of course, it needs improvement. Everything in life needs to, you know, move forward. I, I highly recommend it to all countries. I can talk about it for hours because I'm running the program here within Mennonite Central Committee in Manitoba. And uh, to see the, the massive support that we get from uh, churches, community groups, groups of people, community organizations, uh, former refugees who are working really hard to collect the money, um, you know, uh, build their portfolios to be eligible to sponsor their loved ones again. Again, why I said it's important to gain the general public support, because you can bring refugees, but how are you going to support them 
with the, let's say, uh, uh, an, an ultimate support, not only through uh, stakeholders or settlement agencies, that the cultural interacting with the local society comes through knowledge, understanding, and empathy from the uh, local communities. This won't happen without this support. So I always say it's a great program. We're, we're, doing, we're trying to do our best. We're trying to push and move forward. Uh, we have a great system, great settlement organizations, but yet what actually the general public is offering? Are they, for example, neighbors? I, I have neighbors. Let's say I, I will put myself as an example here, as a former refugee. Uh, I have a neighbor. My neighbor was amazing. Other neighbors were great. They wanted to visit. They wanted to uh, appreciate my culture. I wanted to appreciate their culture. I'm not living in isolation. I'm not here just, uh, let's say, physically working, establishing my life, but also stuck to my community. No. I am having this great relationship with local community to understand uh, the local, uh, let's say, trend. I don't want to say culture again because it's different from neighborhood to neighborhood. And just, you know, I feel I fit in, I belong to. So always, every time I talk about private sponsorship program, I say, please try to remember the support of general public is the key. If the government will make policies without the support of general public, I can't see it work really in a very long term. Also, challenges, for example, are around. We, we, we talk about it, you know, let's say the PTSD, the uh, family reunification issues, the daily adjustment problems, uh, finding work related to uh, uh, experience, uh, language uh, obstacles. All these things could be manageable with the support of the community who were well established but the major support comes from local community, where, wherever refugees are. So I highly encourage all government around the world to adapt to, or adopt the private sponsored refugee program. I'm not gonna talk about blended visa officer first program. It's still early <laughs> to talk about because still here we are you know, promoting for it. But uh, I highly recommend private sponsored refugee program. It happened through general public the collaboration of people uh, in a daily basis to bring refugees, to assist them in uh, their daily integration, to offer them uh, a final destination that they can call home. So um, hopefully I answered your question, but I'm really excited about this program. Again, wherever I go, I always talk about it out of my experience, out of my expertise. It's a great program and hopefully all countries would just move forward towards it and i'm more than happy to share uh, my personal experience my daily experience with refugees and uh, uh, cg's uh, community uh, uh, sponsorship and constituent groups who are really stepping in to change people's life michaela perhaps uh, you want to share any final thoughts about uh, recommendations for uh, people working on community sponsorship programs abroad? I, I actually uh, share Nassim's enthusiasm for private sponsorship. 
What I would love to see is that the opportunity to be involved in private sponsorship is broadened so that it can include a wider group of people. I think the way that private sponsorship has worked uh, historically is that it's involved people who are mostly retired, older, um, and not necessarily from the same communities when we're doing community sponsorship as the individuals who are being sponsored. And that's partly because of the time requirements and financial requirements. The blended visa office referred program, I think was meant to reduce the financial costs, but there's still that time requirement. And I think one of the challenges that has happened within private sponsorship is that there can be a big social distance between the people being sponsored and the people who are sponsoring them, which can be a resource in terms of accessing various kinds of networks, but it might also mean they don't have the kinds of networks people need in order to accomplish what they want. So when we asked our research participants how they got their first job, almost all of them, whether privately sponsored or government assisted, got them through a co-ethnic friend. So why weren't they getting them through their sponsors? Well, in many cases, the sponsors didn't have the kinds of networks that, they're, uh, that would be useful to the people who were being sponsored by that group. So can we think about ways of expanding sponsorship opportunities? I think of the programs like the Together Project, which provides certain kinds of social involvement with government-assisted refugees, but maybe we could create something like that with private sponsorship where uh, is it maybe that there's one group of people who are dealing with the more technical sides of sponsorship and one group who are involved in the more social sides, or that we can encourage people, a broader number of people to become involved because the way in which they're becoming involved is not as demanding. And that might then create more opportunities for friendship, a greater connection to networks that are appropriate to people's employment interests, and I think create greater equality between the people who are sponsoring and the people who are sponsored. And I think that that's a really important part of building those relationships. I, sorry, I just want to add something. Um, I notice like talking about uh, make it more, how to say, available for everybody or allow groups to do that. Again, f through my work in this field, uh, the picture had changed. Like we used to see churches mainly uh, doing the private sponsorship. Now, at least I, I will talk about Manitoba. Lots of former refugees, as I mentioned, sometimes newly graduated students, sometimes uh, young people who are really interested to sponsor refugees. Uh, in many cases, they are relatives. So it's not it, it it's not really uh, the the old people or retired people. So uh, I I always say the picture had changed. I see it every day from the phones because now, for example, I will start doing one on one orientation with the groups. The the age range for those people who are interested to sponsor refugees varied between um, twenty five till fifty five. You know, like it's very interesting to, to see, okay, those are different uh, groups. They're not churches anymore. 
and vast majority of groups who are asking to sponsor refugees, uh, in many cases, they're not religious or they, they, they don't even, uh, uh, let's say, go to church or to mosque or whatever. And they are very different groups. Sometimes one person, uh, one sponsor, a family member will have uh, uh, multiple friends from different backgrounds. So it's it's something I see, I see it as a positive thing. It's something that shows the flexi flexibility. Of course, we need to improve the program, but it's it's really changing towards something really, uh, I, I, I like it, let's say. To see this diversity uh, within the inquiries, it's uh, something I, I I take it as positive thing. To improve it, 100%, I agree. I just wanted to add that really the picture is changing. Thank you. I think that's really exciting. And I wonder if the increased discussion about sponsorship that came with the Syrian initiative has increased public awareness um, and has motivated people to become more involved. And if that's the case, then that is wonderful news. You're right. I do believe that was the case. Yes. Michaela Mason, thank you so much for being with us today. I think it was also a fantastic end of the discussion and transition to our next episode, which will be on the importance of diaspora communities in the private sponsorship of refugees program. So thank you so much and to our listeners, stay tuned for our next episode.